song is an open letter to my fans. Electric Candy, in association with Channel 4.5 Productions, presents Assault and Flattery with Joel Dameron. They are hipster glasses. I see all the black Joel players wearing All right, everybody. Dresses. It's time to start the show. I'm back. I'm back in the saddle again. Um, hello and welcome to Salt and Flattery. I'm your host, Joel Dameron, coming to you live from the uh, Electric Candy Studios here in Durant, Oklahoma. Uh, the studios are a full house tonight. We've got people in other rooms recording other things, uh, doing other stuff. So there might be people in and out. There could be noises in the background. I apologize in advance. Big show today. I got some really interesting topics, some stuff that's uh, really popular right now, because that's the whole point of this show, right? Is to talk about stuff that's popular so that I can get you, uh, all of you uh, losers out there, to uh, click on it and listen to it, right? That's the whole point. That's what I've been told by Landry. Joel, make sure you talk about stuff that's popular that people are talking about so you can get downloads. So first, I want to talk about something which is not on my list, but I just wanted to mention. I don't know if I covered it in in my last podcast because it was such a short one. Um, but Quentin Tarantino has a new uh, he's the new film project announced, and uh, I find that very interesting. A lot of people think that Quentin Tarantino is my favorite filmmaker and my single biggest hero in the world ever, um, and that's not true. Uh, I, I, Quentin Tarantino was certainly my, my first, uh, major influence, uh, as a filmmaker. Uh, he was the director I really caught on to first early on and latched onto and became obsessed with, uh, particularly Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, uh, and Jackie Brown, um, and, uh, I remember seeing Kill Bill in the theater, I mean, that was... A uh, very interesting experience for me. Um, my favorite filmmaker is actually Kubrick, and I've made a, a, a very conscious effort to make that clear to everyone to the point that it's become a cliche to my friends. Um, and if I get into anything even remotely Kubrickian, they'll just say, Joel, no Kubrick. Uh, it's a thing. Um, <clears throat> but for, for years, everybody thought it was Tarantino. Uh, and for a while, it may have been very well Tarantino, but um, because I am someone who uh, looks at my adoration and my respect fairly, I've always had a very legitimate, what I thought, what I think is a very legitimate critique of Tarantino. Um, and it's done with love and adoration and respect because uh, I, I love him so much as a, as a filmmaker. My big uh, critique of Tarantino has always been that um, he's never made a serious film. And I know that sounds pretentious, um, but I don't mean it in a bad way. I just mean that he's never made a straight up like drama or anything like that. He always makes very highly stylized genre films. And there's nothing wrong with making genre films. Uh, Kubrick, who I just said is my favorite, has made nothing but genre films. He made a film in every genre possible. Um, but, you know, he also went into it where the genre was just kind of the shell. 
the the film itself, the story, uh, was just kind of a shell. He he went into every film that he did with, listen, there's something I want to say, there's something I want to get out, a message I have, and uh, I'm gonna I could put that message into any shape or form I want to, but it just so happens that I read this story and I think it would fit well within that shell, so I'm just gonna put it in that shell. Really, it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with this message. But see, Tarantino's never approached a film like that. He's approached film from the perspective of somebody who loves and adores film. So his films are not only uh, genre films, but they're highly stylized genre films and they're homages to to every film he's ever seen. So he's not he, his films don't have some big giant meaning behind them and and they don't have to. That's fine. Movies don't always have to do that. Um, I usually tend to not like it when stuff is purely entertainment. But the thing with Tarantino's films is they're not purely entertainment. They also have, uh, you know, there's a high entertainment aspect to his films because they're fun and they're cool and they're going to have people saying cool stuff and they're going to have cool music and they're going to have cool scenery throughout the film and stuff like that. But uh, he, he manages to... Um, take all the scenery and all the music and all the dialogue and the story and make it uh, in, a, in a way artistically that is different from anybody else. Um, so there is, certainly is a big artistic aspect to his films. But I have a sneaking suspicion that his new film, which is supposedly supposed to be his last film, it will be his 10th film. And he, and he has said that his plan has been all along to make 10 films and then retire uh, from filmmaking. Now he'll pursue um, play writing and making plays and stuff like that because that's always been a big passion of his. He's always uh, wanted to be, I think, more of a a writer and a, and a playwright than he has a filmmaker. But um, this next film he's doing for his last film is very interesting. He, he, he's making a film about the Manson murders particularly uh, the one, the last one they committed, the family, the Manson family committed, which was where they broke into uh, that guy's house in the Hollywood Hills and they killed Sharon Tate and all these other people. Sharon Tate was the big murder among the people they killed because she was a hot young movie star at the time and because she was pregnant with Roman Polanski's baby and that was his wife. Roman Polanski, of course, is an all-time legendary famous filmmaker who uh, I'm sure Quentin is a big fan of. I like Roman Polanski's stuff. Um, I'm a pretty decent fan of Roman Polanski. But uh, so so it, it's unlike anything else Quentin has done. I mean, Jackie Brown was a was a novel by Elmore Leonard called Rum Punch, and so he adapted that, but everything else he's done has been completely original, just out of his head, um, which is very unique for him, because even filmmakers who write and direct their own films, they usually have something they're getting it from, like a book. Kubrick certainly has always worked with a book. Paul Thomas Anderson, who is uh, one of my favorites in my top three, he, he certainly uses books a lot, 
Um, not always. But it's it, Quint deserves an extra. That's part of his extra thing is that he completely comes up with stuff out of his head. So this will be his first film that is is based on true events, uh, and I, I understand why it's significant to him because it happened in '69 when he was a young kid. He probably remembers it. Um, it it has to do with the death, the murder of a famous legendary filmmaker's wife. So right there. Uh, you're going to have all the, the fodder that Tarantino would require for a film. But I can't help but suspect that this being his last film, his 10th film, before he rides off into the sunset as one of the best filmmakers of all time, probably top 10 if this film is good, which I, I kind of feel like it. Uh, there's not much chance that it couldn't be. But I, I have a sneaking suspicion just as a, as a, as a fellow filmmaker, although I don't feel... I can compare myself to someone who's at the heights of Tarantino. Obviously, that would be ridiculous. But just as as a fellow filmmaker and artist, uh, you know, I can't help but think that Tarantino knows that he's never made a serious, straightforward drama. That's never interested in him. I mean, his biggest contemporary in filmmaking is Paul Thomas Anderson, who's made nothing but serious dramas i mean you know um <clears throat> you could look at uh boogie nights as being you know a genre film because it's kind of the 70s porn world and it and but it, it that wasn't necessarily about this i mean it was a drama it was a serious indie art drama and so paul thomas anderson has always made very straightforward uh, I mean, I guess I won't say straightforward, but he's always made very intensely artistic, intellectual drama pieces as films. And uh, I think Tarantino, who enjoyed making what he's m made, feels that he never has quite made a serious drama. And I, I feel like there's not really a way that you could do the Manson family story as a uh, Tarantino-style film. I mean, it doesn't really... F it certainly doesn't fit into that drama. Uh, the Manson stories wouldn't necessarily be a horror film. Um, it, it, it has no other place but to simply be a drama. A real, full-on drama. So I think for the first time... Um, as much as it is weird saying this, for the first time with his last film, his 10th film, we might actually see what, Taran what, a, what a Tarantino film would actually look like. We might actually see a pure form of what an actual Tarantino film would look like. Not a uh, Tarantino-stylized retelling of... A million other movies that have existed and again there's nothing wrong with that I'm just saying it's very exciting to me the thought of seeing Tarantino do what every other filmmaker does and make a very serious drama that's a regular quote-unquote regular movie um, and, and I th I'm, I'm getting the suspicion that that's how he wants to do it. I think it would have, if he wasn't going to do this, it would have been nice to see him end where he started with with a uh, neo noir gangster flick. That would have been cool to see him go back to that because that's where he started. Um, but 
I think this is a good a good ending point for him. It's a great ending point. As much as I don't want to see him stop making films, this is just a a good way to go. It's a good way to go out. He's 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 gonna make a real film, and uh, I can't help but to be excited about it. Um, I I I didn't want to sit here and necessarily do a full on retrospect of Tarantino, so I won't do that. I would like to, but I'm not. I'll save that for when the film comes out, and uh, I'll probably devote an entire episode to Tarantino and do a retrospect and talk about all of his films and talk about the Manson film. Uh, so we'll worry about that for next year when that comes out. I won't do it yet, but uh, I just wanted to kind of open with that and, and say that I very much look forward to it, and I think that he's doing it um, for good artistic reasons. I mean, I think he's... I think maybe he knows his faults and, and I don't even know if it's fair to call that a fault it's just something we've never seen him do we've just never seen him make a quote-unquote regular movie we've never seen him he's he's a filmmaker who always has belonged to art house but we've never really seen him make an art house film we've never seen uh, we've seen what other filmmakers and other genres look like recycled through Tarantino's filter. And it's glorious, and it's great, and it's fun. But we've never seen what Tarantino looks like. So this is going to be very interesting. I hope that he does it in a, um, I won't say normal way, because that's the whole point of being a great filmmaker, is you take a normal process, or you take the idea of making a drama, and you do it your way, and it's glorious because you've done it your way, and it's still good, but it still falls. But we've never seen him do that. So this is going to be very interesting, and I look forward to it. Um, so I wanted to start off the episode. I, I am going to talk about the, the, the McGregor-Mayweather controversy, um, and I, I have, I don't want to say I have a unique perspective. I think there's other people who feel the same way, but I certainly have the contrarian perspective as always on, on this issue. Um, <clears throat> but we'll talk about that in a, in a little bit. I wanted to talk about some other stuff first. Um, I saw some movies, uh, over this last weekend, um, and it started, and, and all three of them were good, so I wanted to share that, because this year has been nothing but a shit show uh, for films. There's been nothing but absolutely awful, terrible films this year, and I've been severely disappointed. 2017 has been a remarkably terrible year for cinema, folks. And as a filmmaker, I, I, f I find that more disheartening than the average person. I've had to... <clears throat> it's like... It, I, I heard an artist recently... Um, I'm not going to mention them because I'm going to say that I don't know how good of an artist they were. I don't, think I don't think they're a great artist, but they certainly had a great analogy for art. And that's that art is kind of like food. You know, um, there's really good food... And you want that really good food all the time, uh, but sometimes you don't have the money, and sometimes you're not in a in a place that has it. So you have to get the shitty McDonald's, or you have to get Jack in the Box, or Whataburger, or whatever. Um, and art is a lot like that, and I can't help but to agree more. So this 2017 film year, I've had to basically live 
on on McDonald's um, and you know uh, gourmet McDonald's food about as as gourmet as McDonald's can get stuff like uh, you know uh, the highlights of my film year thus far have been fucking uh, 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 Guardians of the Galaxy Two and shit like that, which, which Guardians of the Galaxy Two was was funny. It was fun, but it's, you know, come on, it's it's the fancy chicken sandwich on McDonald's menu, folks. It's not, you know, I mean, when you're when you're a filmmaker who makes art house indie shit and that's what you live and thrive on, uh, you know, it, it, Guardians of the Galaxy is not going to cut it for you. Because there's no big significant meaning behind Guardians of the Galaxy. It's just a fun, uh, entertaining time at the movies. And it wasn't even as fun or entertaining for me as it was for my friends or for other people. Um, but, you know, I've had to survive on shit like that. I've gone to see really, really terrible films this year. Um, just for the sake of going to the movie, just to get sneak in that tiny bit of ritual that has made me, you know, feel a little bit, uh, feel a little bit of that good artistic glow for a moment. And uh, I've been s- severely disappointed by everything. Even Alien Covenant. I mean, I liked it, but, you know, and, it, and it's probably my fault because I watched the original Alien shortly before I watched Alien Covenant and it wasn't as good as the original Alien so I I kind of jinxed myself on that one but even Alien Covenant one wasn't uh, as good as I thought it could be and I felt like the ending was kind of a letdown Um, I'm still severely excited about Blade Runner 2049 and I saw the new full on trailer and I, I literally pissed myself watching it it was so fucking good I saw it in the theater and I, I really, I got super hard, uh, like, 30 seconds in. I mean, it just looks so fucking good. I can't. Uh, um, but I also have had uh, some very interesting all-time moments at the movie theaters this year. Of course, <laughs> I'm referring, of course, to when I went to Alamo Draft House in Dallas with with uh with the wife and Nick and his brother Isaac and we saw uh in the theater uh at the Alamo Draft House a full metal jacket which was uh pretty fantastic and glorious to see full metal jacket on on the big screen the way it's supposed to be seen uh Kubrick and all his glory it was just it was they had a whole Kubrick thing going on this year, the, the Alamo Draft House. Unfortunately, I live in, in a shitty part of the country that uh, doesn't care about culture, so they were really only showing like two of his films at the Dallas one when uh, they were showing the rest of his films all over the rest of the country. Um, but that was fun, and I loved Alamo Draft House because they actually seemed to have respect for a film. Uh, once it reaches a certain point, they tell you to turn off your phones and not to talk. And if you talk, they seriously remove you from the fucking theater and kick you out. Uh, which is, is fucking amazing. And there's no adults allowed either. I mean, only adults are allowed. There's no children allowed, which is fucking great. I mean, it's like a real fucking theater and they respect shit and it's nice. Um, so we've, we're going to start going there. But <clears throat> this last week I saw... 
Spider-Man Homecoming. Now, I'm not a big fan of comic books, and uh, I certainly don't like the Spider-Man franchise. Not a big fan of Spider-Man in general. Um, I just don't like the idea of the lead superhero being a giant pussy nerd who's in high school. I just don't think that a ginger pussy nerd who's in high school. I think that's lame. I mean, it's like it's like you got Landry Miller as your lead protagonist. I, it, Landry Miller is a superhero just because he takes off his glasses all of a sudden he's muscular and awesome and I just I've never liked Spider-Man um, the only comic book I've ever really liked is Batman um, and I and I was very disappointed in the uh, the original Spider-Man series they did in the early 2000s it wasn't the original of course because they had a Spider-Man show in the 70s or 80s or something but you know what the fuck I mean uh, the first reboot the one that was directed by uh, <clears throat> the guy that did Sam Raimi, the guy that did Evil Dead, um, wasn't a fan of those because I fucking hate Tobey Maguire. I hate him, um, and I cannot take him seriously as a superhero. Uh, he is a whiny little pussy, and he's nerdy, and he's a ginger, and he tries too hard when he acts. I can't, I can't fucking uh, take it. I don't, I don't like him. I just don't like him. Um, I like James Franco as uh, the son of the of the Green Goblin. Um, I like that they used the Green Goblin. That was my favorite uh, Spider-Man villain. Actually, my favorite Spider-Man villain is the Hobgoblin, not the Green Goblin. Of course, I've got to be the contrarian. Um, but uh, I liked so you know I like the villain choices. I like some of the other choices they made. I didn't love Sam Raimi's decision to do everything very campy, fifty style. I'm not. I don't love that. Um, but you know, whatever. Um, I wouldn't be directing a Spider-Man film. And honestly, if they asked me to direct a Spider-Man film and were going to give me $10 million or whatever the fuck they give those directors, I'd say yes in a heartbeat just to make the money. Um, <clears throat> so I wasn't happy with those because of Tobey Maguire. I also don't like Kirsten Dunst. Never been a fan of Kirsten Dunst. Um, number one, she looks too much like an ex-girlfriend that I dated on and off for about two, three years so I just have never had it. I've never liked her. Um, she's a good actress, but I've just never liked her. Um, so I didn't like her as Mary Jane either. I'm not a big fan of, of, of gingers, period. There was so much ginger going on in that fucking movie. Um, <clears throat> so I didn't like those. I didn't. I certainly didn't like the Andrew Garfield versions. Uh, I felt like those were way too politically motivated, trying to make him hipster. Uh, and, and And secondly, he was like... Spider-Man is supposed to be nerdy and not good-looking and a boy. Yet Tobey Maguire was like 35 when he did that fucking movie. And Andrew... and but I mean, it didn't look young at all. And then Andrew Garfield, who also doesn't look young, uh, was not only not nerdy and ugly, but he was good-looking and hipster and cool. And, and then he whined and moped around. And, and he... Andrew Garfield... Uh, tries way too who, too hard to act even more than Tobey Maguire. So of course I couldn't fucking stand those versions of the film, and I hated the choice of villains they did with those, uh, and I thought it was awful. Um, <clears throat> so I wasn't expecting much for this new Spider-Man, but I went to see it just to go see it because, like I said, I've been so starving for some kind of bit of gourmet food that I'm like 
subjecting myself to bullshit McDonald's crap just to get some little taste of something. Maybe I'll see some camera work I enjoy or, or maybe they'll use a song in a cool way or something. Just give me something for the love of God. So I went and saw Spider-Man Homecoming and uh, I realized that it was written by John Francis Daly. So immediately I'm in. Now, for those of you who don't know John Francis Daly, he was the little kid on Freaks and Geeks. He was also the main character in the movie Waiting with Ryan Reynolds, where he's a waiter. Um, and he was also, you probably know him from this more than anything else, he played Sweets, played Lance Sweets in the TV show Bones. That little nerdy guy is the guy who wrote Spider-Man. Now, of course, he wasn't the only writer. For some reason, fucking, it took four people to write goddamn Spider-Man. I don't know why uh, it took that many fucking people. But I know that John Francis Daly was one of the main writers, and he's a big fan, and he's a legitimate uh, fan and a legitimate writer. That's where his career's going. So I was happy for him. I like John Francis Daly. So I was a little more optimistic. Plus, it had Michael Keaton in it, playing the Vulture, which is not only a cool villain, but a great actor to play him. And uh, I gotta be honest with you, I it also had Zendaya, who I think is pretty smoking hot. Um, but I gotta tell you, I was actually I actually liked Spider-Man: Homecoming. It was actually good. It was funny. Um, it wasn't too over dramatic. It wasn't trying to be too funny. Uh, it had a good mix of comedy and action. Uh, I I didn't I don't like the actor who played Spider-Man again. I still don't like him. Because I think he looks like he's 12. Uh, it's like they went from sh casting someone who was way over age to casting someone who looks like he's severely underage. So I, I didn't love the actor. But guess what? The actor did a good job. He didn't fuck it up. He actually was nice and believable and interesting and not too whiny and nerdy. I mean, he had kind of the whiny, I'm still going through puberty kind of thing going on throughout the whole movie, man. But it wasn't so annoying that I just wanted to shoot him. So kudos to him. Uh, I mean, it's probably because he's a British actor and British actors are better than American actors. But that's another podcast, right? Um, I think we should just start casting British actors to play all American superhero roles now because... Uh, it really seems like the uh, the British people know how to pull it off. Um, Christian Bale, the guy that's playing Superman, and now this kid who's playing Spider-Man. And yes, I realize Andrew Garfield is British, but fuck Andrew Garfield. Um, <clears throat> it was enjoyable. I, I'll tell you, the scene that I really liked the most, actually, was the scene where Peter Parker is in the car with the Vulture, and he finds out, which, by the way, was a great twist, that uh, the girl he's going to prom with, the little uh, half-black girl that he's going to prom with, who was very gorgeous, by the way. Not Zendaya, who is also half-black, but a different half-black girl. Zendaya was playing, like, this weird, like, goth character who looked like she'd never wore makeup, and her hair was all on her face, and she was being all, like, cool and stuff, man. So she looked really hot. But the, the, the main love interest was this other half-black girl, um, which uh, I feel like they casted a lily white um, ginger white boy to play Peter Parker, which is fine. That's what Spider-Man was. That's what Peter Parker was. But then they, they threw in the love interest that was a half black girl whose parents were a white guy. and a, So they're already promoting 
like biracial relationships and then they stacked another biracial relationship on top of it because she couldn't just be regular black she had to be half black because her parents had to be one is white and one is black i felt like that was a little like uh like maybe a little on purpose that felt a little on purpose um because i i i mean listen half black girls are nearly always gorgeous nearly always um and i don't mind biracial relationships i don't care um i dated a girl that was half black and i thought she was tremendously gorgeous and really liked her um but it felt a little forced like they were trying to you know make some kind of political move there on that i don't i don't know for sure but i still liked the movie the best scene though is when he's in the car and he finds out great twist that her dad is the vulture and he's just kind of like frozen and then he's in the car with them and it gets very awkward and the tension really goes up and him and Michael Keaton really start kind of talking to each other without subtly letting each other know who they are without saying it too much. I mean, it just, it's very interesting, very cool how that scene turned out. Probably the best part in the film. I also felt like, um, the really fat nondescript, is he Asian or is he Latin uh, best friend that he had was kind of weird and forced as well. Because he wasn't just a little bit fat. He was like super, super fat. Um, and he was also obviously the comic relief. But, uh, you know, when someone is that severely overweight, it's hard for me to take them seriously or to laugh at their jokes because... I'm concentrating on the whole time that they're that large, which means that they have some kind of severe health problem that they need to be getting taken care of. So no matter what comes out of their mouth, I'm just like, hey, dude, can we get you to a hospital real quick and get you checked out? Because you shouldn't be this big. There's no reason for you to be this large. And uh, we need to get you properly evaluated, get you on some kind of hormone medication. I think your testosterone's probably a little low. Um, let's get that taken care of. But anyway, I also felt like he might have been a little forced, like purposely really fat and purposely, I can't tell whether he's Asian or Mexican. Um, personally, I think he was Samoan. That's my big theory. I think he was like Samoan or Hawaiian, something like that. Uh, maybe Maori. Oh, that was just a joke. But yeah, I think he was something like that, some kind of Pacific Islander. Uh, tribe because he he did or Filipino because he did look kind of Latin but he did look kind of Asian uh, but yeah I think he was something like that Filipino or some Pacific Islander um, but uh, that uh, other than those things though I felt like the film was was very good I mean it was funny uh, it wasn't too much of anything uh, and it was enjoyable so kudos to John Francis Daly and uh, Spider-Man Homecoming. The second film I watched this weekend, well, actually it was the third. The second one was the best, so I'm going to save it for last. The third film I watched this, this weekend was uh, The War for the Planet of the Apes, which was very, um, which was pretty good too. Um, uh I've never seen the original 60s ones, or was it 70s, whenever the original one came out with Charlton Heston saying, get your damn, or whatever he says, get your filthy, dirty hands off of me. 
you damn dirty apes or whatever the hell he says. And he, as he sits there in his little like uh, bikini cut breech cloth looking all gross and despicable because uh, he's a white guy. <laughs> Uh, and older, frail, skinny white guys don't look good naked. Um, <clears throat> so I didn't see the originals, but I saw that the uh, Tim Burton one with Mark Wahlberg in the theater when I was younger. And I didn't love it, but I mean, I thought it was cool. Um, so I saw the first remake, which was uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, I believe, with James Franco's the main character, where Caesar's... Uh, baby and blah 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 uh saw that one it was okay didn't see dawn of the planet of the apes and then now the war for the planet of the apes comes out the only reason i saw it to be honest with you folks is could have woody harrelson looked fucking awesome in it um so we go to see it and uh woody harrelson was fucking awesome in it um he was great uh although i will say that i think we're severely underselling uh Andy Serkis and his performance as Caesar throughout the whole series because he does fucking amazing and it's not just CGI. I mean, he's got a whole fucking suit on and they're having to put in everything digitally. Uh, I mean, it, he's he just does a great job and he did a great job as Gollum in Lord of the Rings, but uh, still got nothing, didn't he? Still has gotten absolutely fucking nothing, which is unbelievable. No Oscars. Um, anyway... And I know they might give him a Lifetime Achievement Oscar, but that's, you know, fucking horseshit. Who cares about that? Um, <clears throat> and what that is is the Oscars going, hey, we fucked up and never gave you an Oscar when we should have a long time ago. So now we're just going to give you a Lifetime Achievement one to make up for the, for the ten times we ignored you. Um, so, yeah, whatever. Um, but it, the cinematography was even good in War for the Planet of the Apes. I enjoyed even the cinematography in it. The music was interesting. It was very orchestral, um, very old-school orchestral. Uh, but, yeah, I loved the cinematography. Uh, Woody Harrelson was great. Uh, Andy Serkis was great. Uh, it was just all around a pretty decent movie, and so I was very happy with it. Um, <clears throat> this brings us to the second film I saw this weekend, which is, uh, I'm talking about third because it was the best. And once again, I went to the Alamo Draft House for this one. Um, saw it with B and our new best friend, Whitney. Um, she's really cool. Um, a lot of fun. This was our first little uh, three way uh, menage a trois date thing with her. And uh, it was a lot of fun. We went to the Alamo Draft House in Dallas and we saw Baby Driver. That's right, Baby Driver. Written and directed by, of course, Edgar Wright, the lovely British man, who is normally known for making, uh, like Tarantino, very genre-heavy niche films. Um, the difference, he's, he's like the, the, the modern-day British Quentin Tarantino. Uh, the difference, of course, is being Tarantino is just a big film nerd, um, in general, and Edgar Wright seems to be a actual nerd who is into really legitimately nerdy stuff. Um, you know him, of course, as the guy who wrote and directed Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz and World's End with Simon Pegg and uh, that fat British guy who's in all of them. Um, he also did... Uh, 
that weird comic booky movie with Michael Sarah, uh, blah 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 versus the world or something. What is that movie called? Um, anyway, it's not important. It was a very comic booky. Um, uh, I mean, he has his own thing, and I think that he's a very, I think he's a good filmmaker. I think he's a good writer. He's very talented at both of those things as well. I just have personally never been into anything that he's done. Uh, I know people who have been. Um, again, I, I'm just not, folks, I, I am not into anything that's even slightly fantasyful. I'm just not. I don't, I don't like sci-fi very much. I like original sci-fi. I like hard sci-fi, like cyberpunk, where there's a deeper meaning. Um, I like original science fiction because science fiction, as we've talked about on the show, is the uh, is the um, <clears throat> so science fiction is essentially the same thing as satire. It's just a more fantasyful version. Um, it's meant to invoke a change in society of something that is stupid. Um, it's supposed to have a higher point, but it's changed into uh, probably because of the Pulp Fiction. Um, and I mean actual Pulp Fiction. I don't mean the film Pulp Fiction. I mean actual Pulp Fiction comics and stuff that were written, written in the 40s and 50s and 60s. Um, that were almost always about westerns or space stuff or whatever. They always had the, the genres. And I think partly that has turned science fi fiction into just, well, as long as it takes place in space or as long as it takes place in the future or as long as there's aliens in it or something, science fiction. Um, <clears throat> I don't like science fiction like that. I don't like... Um, fantasy stuff i'm just i'm not i don't need dragons in my film I, I just want stuff to be real i like stuff that's real that takes place in a world that could be real um <clears throat> and i i you know um i don't like slapsticky comedy i'm not a big fan of that i like dark comedy or satire um so I've just, uh, he's never made anything that was my cup of tea. I think he's a good filmmaker and he's talented, but he's just never made anything that's my cup of tea. Um, Shaun of the Dead, I've never been in the zombies, folks. I've never, and I know if you looked me up on IMDb, you're like, Joel, your first film was Dead Men Walking, which was a zombie film. Yeah, well, you know, I got selected by a room full of people that were forced to have to vote. Uh, on who the director should be, who voted for me because they had already voted for all of the other people they liked to do all the other positions first. And when I got to director, they were like, oh, shit, all we have left is Joel, basically. Damn it. I guess we'll let Joel. And everybody was fucking worried that I was going to ruin the film. But I didn't. I didn't ruin the film. Someone else did. So uh, I did fine. But I, I'm not a fan of zombie films, okay? Um, by the way, George Romero, George A. Romero, yeah, George, George A. Romero, George Romero, um, the famous horror film director who is very awesome, and I like all of his other films other than the films he's famous for, which is the Night of the Living Dead series or whatever. So unfortunately, I'm sorry. Basically, invented zombies. I'm disrespecting. Uh, everything that he created but i i'm not a fan of zombies uh so r.i.p george a romero we're gonna miss you um 
really enjoyed Hysteria and all of your your other stuff like that, which they're remaking, by the way, with Chloe Grace Moretz. Can't wait. Um, but so, yeah, I don't like any of that stuff. I don't like slapsticky comedies. So, of course, I didn't like Shaun of the Dead. Was not, I just was not even interested in seeing it. Didn't want to see Hot Fuzz because it's slapsticky British comedy. Didn't want to see World's End because it's a slapsticky British comedy. Wasn't interested in the blah, blah, blah versus the universe or world or whatever because it's comic booky and fantasy-ish. I just, I'm not into stuff like that. Um, it's fine if you are. Uh, I'm just not. I like reality stuff. I like stuff that teaches a lesson, whether it's moral or... Uh, intellectual or or psychological i like stuff that actually has a point makes a point has a lesson uh means something or just takes place in a regular reality i mean i, I like stuff like that so sorry but this is i i knew it was by him um but obviously i knew he was kind of hearkening back to those 70s car films that were really popular, the grindhouse car films that were really popular in the 70s, like Bullet, uh, you know, for example. And as it turns out, Bullet was one of his big inspirations for the film, as well as, you know, the French Connection and stuff. So I was like, cool, I like those movies. They take place in a real world. They're a little noirish, but they take place in a real world. I'm happy. I, I'm going to go see Baby Driver when it comes out. I don't like that the main character's name is Baby and that they call him Baby Driver and it's got this slick kind of music thing the whole time. But I'm going to go see it. I'm going to go see it just because, you know, it's a talented filmmaker who makes arty stuff who's actually doing a, a regular kind of action-y car film I, i'm gonna go see it and folks it was awesome it was it was it was great um uh it was an action film slash car movie which doesn't really exist anymore i mean you could look at fast and furious as a uh modern day version of a car movie it's just fast and the furious just blows balls and car movies from the 70s were actually cool um and had uh, cool people in them uh, Fast and Furious is horseshit. Um, it's a joke. But uh, this was about as good as you could ask for in modern times for an action movie or a car movie. This is about as good as it gets. Um, the writing was excellent. It was funny. It wasn't too crazy. Um, <clears throat> um, the cinematography was pretty interesting, very actiony. It's very, it's that very Edgar Wright style where everything is goes to the music and is very rhythmic and it switches right on dots and there's lots of switches and stuff. I mean, that's very Edgar Wrightish. Um, but the cinematography was very interesting. Uh, the the soundtrack was great. It wasn't a bunch of songs that were popular songs by popular artists or anything, um, but it was a great. Um, was a great soundtrack. Um, I respect him for picking stuff that wasn't well known um, or by well known artists. Um, I, I thought it was funny. He used a Jonathan Richmond song, and I, which I knew, I knew the Jonathan Richmond song, but I just was like, no, that's bullshit. Nobody else can use a Jonathan Richmond song. So I'm the only person who's cool enough to listen to Jonathan Richmond, who is somebody that nobody fucking knows. I, um, the director's cut of Hitters, which is my film, my debut f feature length film, um, 
the in the opening scene of the film, I have a Jonathan. I have the Jonathan Richmond song. Um, I'm straight. And I don't know anybody who knows Jonathan Richmond. I know that the Fairley brothers used him in something about Mary, but I I was the only person I knew that had ever even heard of Jonathan Richmond. Um, and uh, I used it in the director's cut. It was on the original soundtrack, which of course I couldn't use because it was copyrighted music. Uh, and I had a college professor who's uh, the father of a, of a friend of mine from here. Uh, and he watched the film and he was, he said, first thing he said was, by the way, I just want to tell you that I automatically was in and I appreciated the film when I watched the first scene and you used Jonathan Richmond. And I said, oh, well, thank you for somebody for actually knowing who the fuck Jonathan Richmond is. But Edgar Wright used Jonathan Richmond in his film. And I swear to God, if he becomes popular now and people start using him in their films, I'm going to be pissed because I did it before Edgar Wright did it, folks. Now, of course, technically, the Fairley Brothers did it before me, but, uh, you know, nobody respects them in the uh, legitimate artistic film world. Not saying I don't. I'm just saying other people don't. Um, so, you know, whatever. If it starts getting popular now, just let it be known here that I did it first before Edgar Wright. A good two or three years before Edgar Wright, folks. Um <clears throat> but it was good. I mean, excellent soundtrack, excellent uh, cinematography, excellent editing, um, excellent script, excellent acting, which I guess means excellent directing. Uh, John Hamm was in it. Jamie Foxx, some hot uh, Latin girl. I don't know who she was, but she was hot and she wasn't terrible as an actress. Uh, Kevin Spacey was in it. And, of course, Ansel, the, whatever his name is, the kid, the kid who was in... Uh, <sighs> the fucking teen romance about the girl who's dying and she's constantly having to wear the oxygen thing around and yet somehow this attractive blonde guy comes and falls into her life and falls in love with her blah 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 um that ansel guy that was in that he was in this playing baby he did good i like this ansel kid i like him he's he can express a lot without saying anything which is i think is always a good quality um so those were the three films I saw this past week, and they were really good. Um, but I was pleasantly surprised after a year of shit that I've seen. And I will say that uh, a guy that I know who's a friend who works with my wife, uh, who's an artist, his name is Ethan, and uh, he's a big uh, fan of Edgar Wright. He saw Baby Driver, and he said it was the best film he's seen this year. And I was like, whoa, really stepping out on a limb there, Ethan. But then I saw Baby Driver and I was like, you know what? Honestly, I've got to agree with you, bud. I've got, I, I have to agree with you because I, that's, it, Baby Driver is easily the best film I've seen this year. Um, so all of those people out there right now that are whining and saying, whatever, uh, fucking Guardians of the Galaxy was really good, man. And all the shit. No, it wasn't. It wasn't that good. Nothing has been that good this year. It's all been shit. Baby Driver was actually good. Um, so go see it. It's a good one. <sighs> Moving on to my final topic, the big topic of the episode, the topic that uh, probably clickbaited you into listening to this episode. Uh, McGregor versus Mayweather. I've talked about it a little bit on the show, just saying that I want to go, that I want to see it in August. 
I unfortunately learned this week that I probably will not be able to watch it the night of because uh, I will be uh, filming that night for Bluff, which is my current feature film. And I'm, and I'm kind of sad about that, but I'm kind of not sad about it because I'm going to be filming. I'll have to watch the fight after. Um, I'm very disappointed, but, you know, whatever. Um, it's worth it. Uh I, you know, I'm a big fan of, of Colin Cowherd and of Dan Levitard because they're, they're uh, like me, they're contrarian um, uh, media folks, I guess. They're contra- but they're contrarian like me, so that's why I like them. But they, they, talk, they, they talk about stuff and they have interesting points that are not what the mainstream is propagating, the usual propaganda bullshit that the ma- mainstream is promoting. Me and Colin Cowherd have agreed on many things. One of them, one of the biggest being LeBron James for many years. But, and, and Colin Cowherd used to work for ESPN. He was a little too controversial. They fired him. He now works for Fox News. Dan Lebetard is still on Fox, or is still on ESPN. Um, but uh, this whole Conor McGregor, um, Mayweather thing, everyone that I know... Uh, seems to, including Colin Cowherd and Dan Lebetard, which, way to go, guys. Not very contrarian. I thought you were contrarians, but you had such a, the basic bitch opinion um, on this Mayweather-McGregor fight, which is, oh, the, which is the logical opinion that everybody has, which is, oh, of course Mayweather's going to win. This is a boxing match. It's not an MMA match. It's a boxing match. Of course Mayweather's going to win. He's the greatest boxer ever, certainly the greatest de- defensive boxer ever. Uh, he's going to win. No question about it. He's absolutely going to win. Conor McGregor, uh, you know, is a, is a puncher. But, uh, you know, I mean, he's he's just not a boxer. He's going to he's gonna lose. He's going to get beat. Uh, it's not even going to be a problem. Not even going to be difficult for, for Floyd Mayweather. Now, <clears throat> logically, that would be the choice. And certainly in Vegas, he's the hands-down favorite. Mayweather is the hands-down favorite. Um, it's certainly the logical choice, folks. But I don't think we can... I, I, I have to completely disagree with Dan Levitard, and I have to completely disagree with Colin Cowherd, and I have to completely disagree with all of sports uh, in general, including uh, Joe Rogan, who, you know, uh, insists that Mayweather's going to win and it's not going to be a difficult fight at all. Um, and he's an M- he's a UFC guy. How dare you, Joe? You should be sticking up for the team. But uh, I have to disagree with all of them. And say that I think Conor McGregor definitely has a chance. Um, I understand that's crazy. I understand it's not the logical thing. But I don't think this is a regular sports event that we can bet on like we can bet on other events. I don't think we can properly weigh this like we've weighed other sporting events in the past. Um, I mean, first... Uh, it, it's it's just not a normal it's not a normal match it's not a normal fight there's never been a fight like this before ever in the history of fighting um you, you had that that tony tony tombs or whatever whatever the fuck the guy's name was who was a boxer who went over and fought randy couture in the ufc and got destroyed um uh, You've had other people cross over, but they weren't professionals. I mean, at the level that that Mayweather is. Um, but we've never had anything like this. And, and I think that the sports announcers aren't quite getting 
the magnitude of yet of this yet. They're not quite getting how complicated this is and how unlike everything else this is. Of course, it would make logical sense that the greatest boxer of all time, that one of the greatest boxers of all time, is going to be facing uh, the current top UFC fighter and the current pound-for-pound UFC fighter, mixed martial arts fighter in the world. Of course, you would think, well, he's not going to be wearing the same gloves. He's going to be wearing 10-ounce gloves. Um, You know, it's in a boxing ring with mostly boxing rules. I, I think the boxer has the advantage. Of course, yeah, you would logically think that. But we're not, this is not like a baseball player playing football. You, you can't compare it the same way you compare those two sports. It's not a baseball player playing football. It's not a basketball player playing baseball. It's not Michael Jordan going. And it's not Tim Tebow. It's not, the, it's not like that. It's not like any of that at all. It's not the same as any of that. It's not anywhere close to that. It's, it's a guy who has trained his entire life and is the best in the world at fighting. And who has to be prepared to take on any style of fighting, has to be prepared to take on any punch, any kick, any choke, any wrestling move inside of an octagon where there basically are not any rules and you can beat someone to a bloody pulp. We're talking about a guy who's the best in the world at that, leads in three weight classes, I think, has three belts, I think, in three different weight classes. We're talking about that guy who, yeah, has been beat three times. Um, you know, but we're talking about actual fighting, real fighting where the gloves are thin and you've got no shoes on and all you're wearing is tiny little tight little short shorts and you've got to go in a ring with another man and you've got to try and not get killed. Literally. That's, that's the sport that Conor McGregor fights. He has to know how to protect himself against any fighting style in the world. First of all. But he has to know how to block any punch, how to block any kick, how to block any choke, how to block any wrestling move. And you're going to put him in a match with a guy who only has to punch and know how to block punches. And you're trying to tell me that the guy who knows how to punch and block punches is a superior fighter? He's the one who's the superior person as an athlete? Are you fucking kidding me? Conor McGregor is an inch taller uh, he's about five to 10 pounds heavier on a normal day, but, uh, guess what? He's got a bigger frame and he's faster and he punches way harder. He is a monster and he, he, he doesn't just know how to punch. He knows how to punch. He knows how to kick. He knows how to wrestle you to the ground. He knows how to choke you to death. And he knows how to do all of those to the point where he could literally kill you, literally kill you. We're not talking about hyperbole here where we're talking about basketball or football and we're saying oh that oh oh lebron james will kill michael jordan blah 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 no we're talking about literal death this is actual hand-to-hand combat fighting literal death you realize that if there were if this was just a straight up regular fight or if this was a ufc style fight or if this was a fight in a boxing ring where Connor could do anything more than punch, you realize that he would literally, he could literally kill Floyd Mayweather in about two minutes. You understand that, right? He's 27. He's in ridiculous shape. He's super fast. 
he it hits super hard. He's a guy who's known for punching, who knocks people the fuck out all the time. He's known for punching. He started out as an amateur boxer in Ireland, comes to the UFC. He he's great on all accounts, but he's known for being a puncher. He's known for being a guy that will swoop in when you're not ready and knock you the fuck out. And he's death, like deadly trained, deadly trained to block kicks and punches and grapples and chokes. Anything you can throw at him, he can block and he's the best in the world. And he knocks people the fuck out because his punch is so goddamn strong. And you're putting him in the ring with a guy who's not even a good puncher. You're putting him in a ring with a guy whose sport is, uh, we just punch. So, so wait, you don't, you don't kick or you, you don't choke, you, you don't wrestle. No, we just punch. We just punch and block punches. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, that guy obviously has the advantage. If you're just allowed to punch, then that guy obviously has the advantage. Go fuck yourself. I'm sorry, Colin Cowherd. I'm sorry, Dan Lebetard. But both of you are fucking crazy. Both of you. Go fuck yourself. We're not talking... We're not talking about a regular sport here. We're not talking about two regular sports here. We're talking about boxing, and we're talking about UFC. UFC is the man sport. There's more manlier men in UFC because you actually have to fucking fight. And you're actually fighting for your fucking life in UFC. And if they let that go for any amount of time, you could get killed. And I understand, yeah, you could get killed in a boxing ring. People have been killed in a boxing ring, blah, blah, blah. But you got to understand that you have the risk of horrifyingly crippling injuries every time you enter a UFC ring. You're not defending just punches. You're defending punches and kicks and chokes and grapples. You have to be prepared for anything. And you're telling me the guy who just punches, the guy who's who runs from every punch, who for basically the last 10 years of his career has basically just avoided every punch possible and then came in with little henpecks for 12 rounds until it's over and they have to make a decision because he got little more because he got more little henpeck punches and avoided all the punches throughout the match that he won. You're talking that guy? You're telling me that guy who yes has never been beat, but he's 40. He's 40. Even he himself said he's not as fast as he used to be. He's not as quick as he's used to be. He doesn't have as much power as he used to be. Now, he may be saying that for strategy, and I suspect he is. I suspect he's saying that this is going to be an actual difficult match and could be a really hard match for him because he's trying to act, trying to, to, to make it look like he's not going to win and he's scared. I know, I think that's what he's doing with that. But it's not like what he said isn't true. You can't tell me he's in better condition than, than, than Conor McGregor. You can't tell me Floyd Mayweather is in better condition than Conor McGregor. He's not. He's 40 years old. He weighs a buck 35. And he's got a small body and a small head and small hands. And Conor McGregor is an inch taller. He's only 5'9". 
He's only 155 pounds, but he's got a bigger frame. He's got bigger hands. He's got a bigger head. And he's in a sport that is tougher physically. He's in a physically tougher sport, and he has to endure more punches and more hits than Mayweather has ever had to endure in his life. If you took the, the, the opposite way and you put Floyd Mayweather in a UFC match, he wouldn't even last a round with Conor McGregor. You realize that, right? You realize that Conor McGregor is not only the superior athlete, but the superior fighter by a ridiculous amount, right? So what if he has three losses? Connor, fucking Colin Cowherd was trying to act like, oh, he has three, he has three losses. He's a con man, folks. He's just talking trash. And, and, and Mayweather is not saying nearly as much and is being a lot more demure. No, he's not being a lot more demure. He's not good at talking trash. He's getting his ass handed to him at talking smack. And get over it, Colin. That's what boxing is. That's what UFC fighting is. That's what fighting is. It's talking trash. And guess what? Conor McGregor is way better at it than Floyd Mayweather. That, and, and you can gripe all you want about his three losses and say all the shit you want. But Connor hasn't been sitting there righteously talking trash forever. He's been doing that for a, a short amount of time. And in that short amount of time, he's lost one time, but he came back and beat that guy. Not, what, four months later. Conor McGregor is not some wimpy little guy who just talks a bunch of trash. He talks a bunch of trash because he does exactly what he says he's going to do. There was a guy he fought in the UFC that everybody thought was going to destroy him because that guy was so much better of a fighter. Just so much better of a fighter. And Floyd said, he's not a better fighter and I'm going to fucking destroy him. And everybody tried to ridicule Conor McGregor. And then what happened when they got in the actual ring? Conor McGregor knocked him the fuck out in like 34 seconds. And this guy was supposed to be super superior as a fighter. And Conor said, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to fucking knock his head off. He's not going to win. It's going to be over. And everybody was like, oh, that's crazy. And then he goes in there and fucking does it in 34 seconds. He is not a guy who just talks trash and can't back it up. He says exactly what he's going to do, and then he goes in the ring and does it. He's a monster. He's a lion. He's a way better fighter than Floyd Mayweather. Floyd Mayweather is a little wimpy bitch, and you're sitting there wondering, Colin Cowherd, why people are cheering for Floyd, or why people are cheering for Connor and they're not cheering for Floyd. It's because nobody fucking likes Floyd Mayweather. They've never liked him. He's a pussy, and he's a wimp, and he sits there. He doesn't actually fight. He He's the greatest strategist ever as a boxer. He's the greatest defensive boxer ever. But he's not anywhere close to being the greatest boxer. You know why? Because boxers actually fight. Great boxers actually fight. All Floyd Mayweather has done, especially the last 10 years, is avoid, 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 avoid. You know why he avoids? Because his punch ain't shit. He doesn't have a punch. He's got no power. I fucking watched him. I watched his goddamn fights and I watched Conor McGregor's fights and you know what Floyd Mayweather's fights look like Floyd, May Floyd Mayweather's fights look like oh avoid this punch oh a duck that oh avoid this punch a pat oh avoid this punch oh avoid the a pat avoid this punch avoid that you know what Conor McGregor's fights look like they look like madness 
They look like a fucking warrior swooping in, ripping somebody's fucking head off, and then standing there and raising his hands. I mean, have you seen some of his fights? Colin, have you seen some of the fights where he just leaves the other person just beaten to a pulp, blood all over the fucking place, wearing the other guy's blood? That's UFC. That's what that is. And I heard some guy, some Brian fucking Kinney or whatever his name is. Hold on, I've got it written down here. I'll tell you. I heard, yeah, Brian Kinney on fucking uh, Dan Labitard's show saying that Mayweather versus McGregor is like a softball player playing against a major league baseball player. In other words, saying that Mayweather is the major league baseball player and McGregor is the softball player. Are you fucking kidding me? If anything, if anything, first of all, you can't compare it like that because this is unlike any other sports rivalry or match we've ever seen in the history of sports so shut your fucking mouth number one you can't predict this this is not a usual predictable match you actually have to sit and weigh all the all the differences a lot more closely for this um if anything fucking floyd mayweather is the softball player and conor mcgregor is the major league baseball player because Conor McGregor is a man who once again has to actually fight in his sport. You actually get beat the fuck up and could get permanently hurt and mangled for the rest of your fucking life. If you get in the leg, you wondered, Floyd tried to make fun of him in the press conferences for tapping out as soon as he got in a choke. You know why? Because if you put somebody in an arm bar or a leg bar and they don't tap out five seconds after you put them into it, you could snap their leg in half. This is a real fucking sport. UFC is a dangerous real sport where you have to really fight and you have to actually learn how to fight in every style to survive. Everybody made fun of CM Punk for getting in there and getting beat by Mickey Gall. And CM Punk is a black belt. He's a fucking black belt in Muay Thai, or not Muay Thai, but uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. He's a black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. We're talking about a guy that could kick any normal person's ass. You made fun of CM Punk for getting beat by Mickey Gall, but you realize he could walk into a room and kick everyone in the room's fucking ass if he wanted to. He's a black belt in Jiu-Jitsu. Do you understand what that means? That means you could put him in a fight with a regular person and he would annihilate them. He would straight kill them in a real match, like actual death. And Conor McGregor is the best in the world at that. And you're putting him in a ring with a guy who just, oh yeah, I know how to avoid punches and I and then I'll come in and punch a little bit and it'll get me points. And after 12 rounds, I'll be decided the winner because I have more points. Are you fucking kidding me? I say Conor McGregor, after a few rounds, says fuck it. Because Mayweather will He'll try to drag this thing up. Conor is certainly not getting knocked out. Not, not getting knocked out. I'll tell you that. Not going to happen. Because you, <clears throat> that's another thing. You talk about the fucking gloves that, that oh, Mayweather has him wearing 10-ounce gloves. Oh, my God, he's got to wear 10-ounce gloves. Oh, you mean he's got to put bigger, heavier things on his fist? Oh, oh, oh. he's got more padding. His punches aren't going to be as impactful. Uh-oh. Yeah, well, you know what else that means? That means Mayweather's punches aren't going to do shit 
to Conor McGregor because Conor McGregor's get used to getting hit with four-inch gloves that have no fingers in them where you can basically fill a person's fucking fist. He's used to getting rocked by feet and fists that have very little padding on them. You think an, a 10-ounce boxing glove is going to have as much effect on Conor McGregor? Are you kidding me? Yeah, it means he may not be able to hit Floyd as hard, but he's still a way harder puncher than Floyd. And two, Floyd's punches are going to feel like slaps. you got to be fucking kidding me. This is, it's just ridiculous. You can't, you can't compare the two. It, it's like an assassin fighting a guy who's really good at uh, shooting guns. It's like, uh, this guy's the number one uh, assassin mercenary in the world. And then this guy, um, well, he's the number one target range shooter in the world. He's really good at, at shooting at target ranges. He's won every major target shooting competition in, in the world. Oh, really? Because this guy that he's fighting is a fucking assassin. It's I just... <sighs> This fight is so ridiculous. It's so stupid because you're telling a guy who's used to having to defend against every style of fighting in the world who could kill you in seven different ways to just use one thing. Just use one of those things. Just use punches. And you just have to block punches. He's not going to try to kick you or tackle you or put you in a chokehold or snap your arm in half. He's not going to do any of that. He's not going to try to do anything that could potentially kill you. He's just going to be trying to punch you. And then, and, but there's no way you can win because there's no way you can win though, because it's, it's a, it's a match that's about punching and, and you're, you're, you only know punching a little bit. It's not the same at all. Uh, 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 get the fuck out of here. Stop it. Dance for me, boy. It's just silly. Floyd Mayweather is a legitimate actual fighter who actually fights. And Floyd Mayweather is a guy who punches. And he's not even great at that. He's not even the best in the world at that. He's 40. And he's a tiny little he's a tiny little black man who's 40 years old, who's not even anywhere close to being the greatest puncher in the world, the greatest boxer. He's just really good at defense and avoiding. And you're telling me you're going to put him in, 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 a, in a boxing match with boxing rules against a guy who's a fucking assassin? Are you kidding me? Who's, who's bigger than him and faster? Oh, yeah. There's no way he could win. There's no, there's no way Conor McGregor could win. He's got no chance. Spare me. I, I hope if I was Conor, I would go three rounds with him. Just fucking around, taking it easy, not being too aggressive, still being the way that I fight still fighting in my style. And then after that three rounds is over and we go into the fourth round, I'd take a couple punches, try to hit him a couple times. And then I'd lock him up like they do in UFC. And then I just start kneeing him in the fucking face and I'd knock him the fuck out and I'd leave him laying on the fucking mat bleeding all over the fucking place. And I'd walk off and take the disqualification and say, fuck you. I fight for real. You don't fucking fight. You punch. You avoid punches. I actually fight. Fuck you. I mean, do you, do you realize, folks, do you realize how badly Floyd Mayweather would just get destroyed 
you realize how badly he'd get beaten to death if he was in a fucking UFC ring or anywhere but a boxing ring for five minutes. You, do you understand? Do you understand what he's up against? Do you understand that Conor McGregor is a fucking merc? He's a fucking assassin. He could kill people with his bare hands. He's way more lethal and way more dangerous than Floyd Mayweather has ever been in his entire life. It's not fair. It's not a fair fight at all. Conor McGregor is so much superior as a fighter that it's ridiculous. And you're trying to, and you people are seriously trying to act like, well, there's just such a big difference between boxing and, and fighting. Uh, it's just such a big difference. Uh, it, you know, it's so, di it's not, it's not like baseball and softball. It's not even like that at all. I'd like to see a guy try and pitch like they pitch in softball, first of all. I've seen I've seen girl softball players that can strike out guys. I've seen it. So it's it's not like baseball versus softball. I can't think of anything it's like because there's never been anything like it before. I'll tell you what it's like. It's like a UFC fighter is fighting a boxer. That's what it's like. It's like a martial artist is fighting a boxer. That's what it's like. All I know is that Conor McGregor is trained to block everything and take everything and still win. Whereas Conor McGregor is trained to avoid a punch. Now, I realize in the match, they're only allowed to punch. And I, and I really hope it's not embarrassing. I hope Connor takes this seriously. Because I can tell you right now, he's not going to get knocked out. And I, can, and I can also say this. If he takes it seriously, if Connor takes this seriously, and this is a serious match, Connor could very well win. And he could very well win by knockout. I've seen Mayweather struggle in fights before. He struggles against left-handers. He's always has. Guess what Conor McGregor is? A left-hander. Usually power punchers get tired with Mayweather. They get worn down. Then he can sit there and, you know, wear them down and then win by points. But McGregor's you can't wear down McGregor. He's not a person who can be worn down. He's got just as much energy as Mayweather does, plus more. He's not going to get worn down. You're not going to wear him out. He's used to he's used to having to wrestle people physically on the ground. It takes more endurance to compete in 3 rounds of UFC or 5 rounds of UFC than it does in 12 boxing. I I can tell you that right now because you know, having to stand and bounce around and take punches while you're throwing punches is one thing. But having to stand up and throw punches, but also throw kicks, but also block punches and kicks, but also go to the ground and wrestle with somebody and get pounded by the side of somebody's fist in the face and then have to stand up again and do that all over and then not try not to get choked, try not to get put in some kind of hold till, you, till it could snap your arm in half. That, that's just more. It's more. It takes more. It, it wears you out more. You have to have more stamina to do that. 
So this is a joke of a fight because Connor is the superior fighter, not because Floyd Mayweather is the superior fighter. And if Floyd takes this match seriously at all and, it, and he does his homework, then I think he could very well win. Because, you know, even even if Floyd Mayweather is at his best defensive ever, which he's getting old, it's going to be kind of hard to do that. Even if he plays his best defense ever, it could take Connor one punch. It could seriously take Connor one punch. Floyd Mayweather has never been hit like Connor McGregor can hit him. And we've seen the best fighters in the world think that they can take Conor McGregor and then him come up once and hit them in the face and they're out. Just stone cold out. We've seen it happen. So, and, and UFC fighters have got to be a little tougher than boxers too. So you can't, because they got to take kicks and punches and chokes. They don't just have to take hits. So, you know, maybe, maybe McGregor only gets two hits on Mayweather in the whole match. But it is it, he only needs one. He only needs one. And I'm just telling you, he's got more than a puncher's chance. Uh, there's more than a chance that Conor McGregor could win this match. And could embarrass Mayweather. I'm telling you, he's not... I, I'm worried that he's just going to sit there and try to take the payday and just play around with him the whole match and not try to do much. I fucking pray to God that is not what's going to happen. I really hope Connor takes this seriously, does his homework, does what he does best. And, and I really hope he doesn't try to box. I don't want him to box. I want him to fight his style, move all over the place, have that wide stance that he has, keep him at a distance like he does with other. I really want him to do that. I hope he doesn't. I hope he doesn't try to do the Ronda Rousey thing like she did against that first girl she lost to when she tried to straight up box her because she was a boxer. That was the worst strategy in the world, and I said it, and I called it. If she tries to box her, she's going to get fucking killed. And that's what happened. And then the second girl, I said the same thing. The second girl is too big. She's too strong. She's going to get fucking killed. And she got killed. What we're seeing here is a monster versus a guy who's really good at ducking punches. A little scrawny guy who's really good at ducking punches against a guy who's a fucking monster. He's a warrior in every sense of the actual word. He could end up destroying Mayweather. And if I was him, I'd fucking, you know, I mean, if it's getting down to the end of the match and nothing has happened and he's got more points, I'd fucking get disqualified. Get disqualified, show him what's up. Let him know that you could fucking kill him. Hey, buddy, if this was if this was outside of any ring at all, if this was real life and we were in a bar, I could fucking kill you in seven different ways in three seconds. So just know that. Because that's what I'd fucking do to him. Fuck that. Anyway, that's the podcast today, folks. So I guess I'll see you guys next time. Next week, we'll hang out, right? Next week or something like that. Whenever I can find some culturally relevant things to talk about so that you'll click on the, on the fucking podcast and listen to it because that's what Landry tells me I have to do. Find something to talk about next time. Sorry I didn't have a piece to read for you guys at the beginning. I haven't been writing much lately.
been working on other stuff. I've actually been working on um, taking my film, my feature film debut, Hitters, which is a Tarantino-style gangster film, and turning it into a, a TV show. Because um, in the in the 60s and 70s, and then in the 90s, there was a resurgence with Tarantino specifically. But um, uh, the filmmaker used to be king, and you could walk into a film studio as a filmmaker who wrote, wrote his own films and say, hey, I want to make this film. I want to be a filmmaker. Here's the script. And they might actually read the script and look at it and go, oh, this guy is talented. The script is good. Um, okay, we'll let you make it. And they would take a chance like that. Nowadays, they don't do that. The film industry is failing and falling apart. Everything is going to the Internet. And uh, in today's world of 2017, the filmmaker's world is now the television world um, because there's so much media being demanded for TV and online stuff that uh, filmmakers are no longer a thing. Now they're showrunners, they're show creators. So they walk in and they have that and um, they're given chances because there's such a high demand. So that's what I'm doing. I'm changing my format. You can't, as, as, as I learned from Guy Ritchie, um, you, you can't hate the game. Um, you know, the saying is don't hate the player, hate the game. You can't hate the game. Um, Guy Ritchie told me this. You can't hate the game because you're in the game. Uh, so you got to accept the game, uh, learn what the rules are, and be the best at that game. Um, and if it changes, then you got to change. So the new game now is content. It's, uh, it's uh, you know, Netflix and all these places that are rising up and creating TV shows and movies. So I'm turning hitters into a tv show which it actually uh really lends itself to a tv show because there's so many fucking characters and so many goddamn storylines that it could very easily be uh 10 episodes of television or 12 so i'm working on um seasons the first three seasons the storylines for the first three seasons and plotting it all out for the first three seasons and i'm on the third season and i'm really questioning where i'm gonna go with it but i i uh it wasn't difficult to do the first season. It wasn't difficult to do the second season. The third season, I'm I'm starting to have a little uh, trouble, not because I can't figure out something to do, but because I'm trying to decide whether I want to go this direction or this direction. And um, I'm probably going to have to consult with some, some good friends and figure that out. Um, I will tell you more on that as it comes along. But I'm going to develop that. I'm going to write the first few episodes. Um, and then I'm going to start sending it around to the different uh, places that make TV shows, which is, you know, it could be 40 different places by the time I'm done. Uh, I'd love to have it rated R and on HBO or Cinemax or Showtime or Netflix. I think those would be uh, good places for it. If I had to make it a little more PG-13, I would say I want to put it, or TV Mature, I'd say FX would be a good place. It's basically uh, going to be like Fargo, but instead of with the Coen brothers, it's going to be with Tarantino. And that's the beautiful thing about the noir genre, the pulp fiction genre, um, actual pulp fiction genre, is you could just go for, for years and years on that. I could make 10 seasons out of Hitters if I wanted to because it's just noir stuff. I mean, you're just taking all the crime stories you know. That was the that was the, the beautiful thing about what Tarantino did with Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction is he just took the crime genres we all know and love 
and did the same stories, the same old stories, but he just made them his and gave them a flair. And that's what I'm doing with hitters. So I'll update you more on that as we go along. Anyway, that's it. I'll see you guys next time. It was fun. Uh, see you later. Bye, guys. Channel 4.5 Productions presents Assault and Flattery with Joel Dameron. Or hipster glasses. I see all the black players wear at NBA press conferences, which are ironically also worn by preppy white girls on Facebook. I will never wear you or let you touch my face or even graze my skin. But it's not because I'm an elitist douchebag. It's because you make your wearers look fucking ridiculous.